So yeah, I'm, I'm going to share this morning about dealing with temptation. That's why I said, you know, you might be tempted to light some fireworks, but maybe deal with that temptation. Uh, the, the idea of dealing with temptation is not a subject that I, I love to share, because so often it comes with it, this kind of along with this subject comes the sense of partial victory, not total victory. And it's much nicer to preach messages about total victory and it would be much easier to be a kind of a prosperity church where we only tell you the positives of the faith like God will heal all your diseases and you can you know, have everything you want and just name it and claim it and unfortunately that's not real life for believers. For believers real life is actually quite complicated but I do want to open with this line. There is no temptation that you cannot resist. No temptation that you cannot resist. What do you do with a statement like that? Does that make you even more of a loser when you give in? Because, you know, if, if the preacher says that there's no temptation you can't resist, and then you know at some point you give in to temptation, then you feel doubly condemned. And I don't, I don't want you to feel that way, but I do want you to understand how to stand your ground against temptation. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, as we look at your word this morning, help us to gain strength, help us to understand what's going on in our lives and help us to walk in the victory that you've won for us in Jesus' name. Amen. It's important that you learn to handle temptation. I'm going to start with a story. Someone in this church, probably in this church right now, was once asked by me to just kind of get involved a little bit in helping by counting the offering. So, you know, one of the things we do is we try to administrate finances. So I said to the guy, you know, like, just count this every week. And he came to me after doing it once or twice and said, ah, I'm struggling. It's hard to, it's hard to see all this money, you know, and not feel some kind of a weird stirring inside, like this desire to maybe just take some of it. And obviously this is a common problem because in another church I was in, they'd been doing fundraising for some event. And the deacons had been selling the, the, the raffle or the cake tickets or whatever. And the church pastor was now saying to the guys, but bring back the money. And he had a whole like five minute story where he had to bring them under the fear of the judgment of God if they didn't return the money that they'd been raising for the church. So obviously he was very worried that his own people in his church were going to steal from the church. And uh, I just thought, no, can it really be that bad, you know? Because these things like dealing with a bit of money, you know it's not yours. Why would it even be a temptation? I was battling to relate to that. And because something got angry inside of me, I said to my friend who was like saying, I don't want to count the offering, it makes me feel too weird. I was like, but what if God wants to give you a job in a bank? <laughs> How will you ever cope with that if you can't cope with this? I mean, in all honesty, this is like a million or two some Sundays or much less. And then, in a bank, it's like heaps of money. People come in with those black bags. Everyone knows it's not vegetables. <laughs> You've got to be able to learn to deal with temptation. Another thing that was so peculiar to me was a, a close friend of mine, a Malagasy man, who's been married for years, crossed paths with in the mall or supermarket, I don't know where, somewhere on the street, he saw an ex-girlfriend. And he looked at the ex-girlfriend and then he greeted her or she greeted him 
and he felt something. And he was like, I don't know what was that. Do I still love her? Am I going to have an affair? What? I can't, I don't understand. Why would you feel that just because you have a desire, you must give into that desire? It's almost like he was asking this existential question like, am I destined to shipwreck my marriage because I've got feelings for an ex-girlfriend? I said, no. You, all of us, if you like a person, you like them for certain reasons, just because things don't work out doesn't mean those things that attracted you cease to attract you. So I have an ex-girlfriend too. And probably the things I liked about her are still in her personality. And if I met with her, I might still like those things. So I just don't talk to her, ever. I mean, we don't communicate because I don't want to expose myself to the possibility that she's actually nice and always was. So, but just because you have a desire, why does this guy think now he's maybe fated to carry it out? And that's a very wrong view of who you are. It's a very wrong view of who you are. Maybe some of us haven't been taught this idea. Maybe it's not culturally embedded in Malagasy people that you have actually got agency, which means you have authority to make decisions for yourself. Maybe because your parents don't give you that kind of freedom, or maybe you only get that kind of respect when you're really much older, you think more that life happens to you than that you are called to rule over your life. But part of the revelation should come that you are both responsible for what you do and free to make decisions about what you do. And this is what sets us apart from from animals. We, we're not animals. We don't just have an urge and then have to give in to that urge. If you were never taught that you have that freedom to rule, then you're probably also not very good at taking responsibility. And that is a characteristic of a collectivist culture where it's always someone else who has to take responsibility for you or your problems. And I'm saying, no, you probably caused those problems. Now you take responsibility for those problems. You have the right to say no to your parents when you're saying yes to God. If there's a conflict of interest, God comes first and you are responsible under God for the choices you make in your life. So with animals, they, they get an urge and then they just carry out what that urge demands. Like see steak, eat steak. I could put steak in front of my dog and say no, 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 and he'll go, uh, uh, eat that steak. And with much hard training, maybe I could teach him to act contrary to his nature, but it's unlikely he would ever do that of his own decision. Only because he's fearing me beating him or not rewarding him or something. But human beings, we can have an urge, a desire, and then we can have a moment of reflection. And God, by His Spirit, always does this to you, that when you get a desire, there's a moment where your conscience steps in and your heart is involved and your head is involved and there can be an internal wrestle and you have got this one chance to make a decision by your will that overrides what you want, it overrides your urge or your desire. And so we as humans have urge and then reflection, will, decision and finally action. So your action can be completely contrary to the desire that you have could choose to fast. You could choose not to eat as much rice as you eat. <laughs>
See, we're made in the image of God, and that makes us infinitely greater than the animals. This is one of the problems with evolutionary thinking. The evolutionists say, you're just an evolved ape, so of course, just do whatever satisfies you and makes you feel good. Of course, just live how you want to live. You're not morally accountable to something higher than you. But actually, we are. We're morally accountable to God. We're made in His image, and we've been given the ability to say no to temptation. In fact, grace teaches us. Grace, not law. Grace trains us to say no to ungodliness. So that's the, the first point I wanted to make is some of us have a wrong view of temptation and we think temptation is it's a given that we will give in. It's not. We're able to say no. Is Jesus any use to us in this process? I didn't think anyone would ever ask that. Is Jesus any, any help? Of course he is. Hebrews 2 verse 14, I'm going to read from Hebrews 2 verse 14 to verse 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, and through that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus came and he partook in flesh and blood, he became a man, so that he could destroy the one that's been holding us captive. So... And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We've been, before you know Jesus, before you become a Christian, you're actually terrified of death and subject to lifelong slavery. A slave to sin. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In other words, he helps believers. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus was made like us in every way, so that he could be a, a high priest that we can relate to, that he could stand in our place and advocate for us, and mediate for us, and substitute for us. So he's the priest who makes propitiation. He turns away the wrath of God for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So somewhere in Jesus, you find help when you're tempted. He has been tempted and he suffered in his temptation. In other words, it was a very real temptation that Jesus was experiencing. And if you consider that statement, temptation is actually a kind of suffering. So many people, when they're tempted, they feel a kind of a painful struggle. There's an agony, there's a, there's a, there's a pulling, there's a breaking, there's a conflict. It's, it's not an easy thing. And Jesus, you might think, maybe he had it easier than you because he didn't have a sin nature. Well, the theologians, thankfully, have debated that for us for many, many years. And they've tried to come up with a better understanding of what Jesus' temptation was really like. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was tempted... But he never gave in to temptation. He never sinned. And the question the theologians ask is, was it that 
Jesus was not able to sin or simply able not to sin? In other words, was it an impossibility? He was not able to sin or was he just strong enough that he was able not to sin? Or maybe the temptation wasn't big enough that so he could resist it. But the, 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 the majority of the, the good thinkers on this topic actually speak of the impeccability of Christ and explain that he was actually not able to sin because his divinity always existed even while he took on humanity. And for various reasons, it's absolutely impossible that Jesus could have sinned. Now you've got to think about this carefully and realize that that means that Jesus experienced all kinds of temptation without ever having the liberty to give in. Which means if temptation is suffering, he suffered to the utmost when tempted. He, he had no way of satisfying the, any pull, any temptation or pressure that he was under. He couldn't escape it. He had to experience it to its full extent. Now, most of us don't do that. Most of us get to a point when we're being tempted and then we bail. Like, I mean, I can only resist chocolate for so long. And I'm still trying to keep my body healthy, but there comes a time when I have that chocolate. It's like a privilege, I understand, but it's also like a contradiction inside me where I want to be healthy, but I also want to enjoy this chocolate, and then I give in. Temptation over. Woohoo! <laughs> Jesus, on the other hand, would never, when his temptation occurred, he would never have had a way out. He had to go all the way through and still not sin. So when you look at Jesus, don't look at him as a, 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 the guy who I can't relate to because he doesn't understand temptation. Look at him as the guy who has been tempted more than any of us ever was or will be. And then you say, okay, Jesus, now help me to understand more of you so I can actually live like you did in the strength that you also demonstrated. So we, we can look at Jesus like that and ask questions like, was he able to sin, not to sin or not able to sin? But with human beings, we can also ask these questions about ourselves in different states or times of history. For example, Adam and Eve before the fall. Let's understand humanity's position. Pre-fall, before sin entered the world, mankind was able to sin and able not to sin. In other words, Adam and Eve had no sin nature, so nothing compelled them to sin. They were in a kind of neutral position where they were able to sin, able not to sin. Of course, this brings true culpability to Adam, because when Adam sinned, he wasn't being driven by a sin nature. He sinned, don't know, ex can't explain it, but obviously the potential to sin existed, and uh, the temptation came in the form of a fruit, and it had certain characteristics that appealed to his physical being, and even eventually, thanks to the incitement of the enemy, pride was stirred up as well, and sin was born in Adam and Eve. So pre-fall, able to sin, able not to sin. Here's the interesting thing. Fallen man, after, after sin came into the world, most of human history, this is what we're looking at. Fallen man, sinful man, born in sin, carrying a sinful nature, is not able not to sin. In other words, sin is inevitable for the fallen man. Give him enough time, 
that little boy is going to tell a lie. Given enough time, that person is going to do something out of jealousy or envy or they're going to gossip. People sin because they are, have a sinful nature. We didn't become sinners because we sinned. We were sinners and that's why we sinned. So we were not able not to sin. And this was God's problem with Israel for so many years that he sent prophets to Israel speaking to them saying, this is what I want you to do. Choose blessing. Choose life. If you honor my laws, if you follow me in my ways, I will bless you. This is the better path. And what did Israel do? Ah, they went the other way. Prostituted themselves to false gods, ran after idols, had wicked kings who lived for themselves and made countless violations of the law. And God kept saying to them, this is what you should be doing. And Israel discovers they cannot obey God. And God finally says, this is the, this is the fact. You cannot get it right because you have a heart problem. So I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to write my laws in that new heart and that new heart is going to want to obey where the old heart is in rebellion against God. And so with fallen man, and Israel is a brilliant example of that, you have not able not to sin, but everything changes with regenerate man. Because when you are born again, God does in fact give you a new heart that longs to please Him and a desire to do what is right and he gives you his holy spirit and he gives you his word and he comes alongside of you and gives you grace and you enter into a new state when you become a christian that is foreign to you as a non-christian if you have lived as an unbeliever for 30 years and then you became a believer you don't realize this but you are now able not to sin you were previously not able not to sin. But now you are able not to sin because you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. And some of us haven't realized that. Some of us still battle against sin as if we were unregenerate thinking this for sure is going to win sooner or later. And I'm saying to you, sanctification is a process but it proves that you can become increasingly more and more like Jesus. You can move from a place of being in unholiness to a place of being more holy. Not preaching perfection, I'm preaching refinement, that you can increasingly become more and more godly over years in your life. That is absolutely possible for you as a believer. It is impossible for an unbeliever to become increasingly holy because they simply are not able not to sin. Regenerate man, because you're born again, you have a new heart, a new spirit, the Holy Spirit also indwells you. Jesus has made you born again alive by His Spirit. You are able not to sin. And the amazing thing is if you follow the trajectory of where God is leading us, you get to the last state of man, which is glorified man who is not able to sin. Just like Jesus, because we are united with Christ as His bride after the wedding feast of the Lamb. No more sin. Not even able to sin. And this is important for us to understand. You are not as you were before you were born again. That's why Paul could come and write to the churches and he could say, let those who steal, steal no longer. Why could he say that with conviction? Because it was possible for them to repent and to change because their heart had been changed. He said to those in, in the letter to the Ephesians, 
He said, um, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received, Ephesians 4 verse 1. And later in that chapter or the next, he starts to urge people to live within the characteristics of someone who is a child of God, not a child of the world. So he effectively doesn't appeal to the law as the motivation for them or the, the, the force which will help them not to sin, but he appeals to their identity and says, you are now a Christian, so behave like a Christian. So what we see is, we were slaves to sin. Israel was repeatedly choosing to do the very things that displeased God. But Jesus came to take away the penalty of sin and to break the power of sin. And when all is done, he will also remove the presence of sin. So think of that Jesus' work. Penalty of sin is removed. Power of sin is being broken as the kingdom of God advances in our lives. The power of sin is being broken in my life steadily and increasingly more and more, although I will not be perfect until I am glorified. And in the glorification, when Jesus comes back and raises us to new life in a new body, in a new heaven, and a new earth, then there will be no more sin. And so finally, the presence of sin will be removed. And you can think of it in, in, in Christianese churchy words like justification, that's the penalty of sin being removed. We are justified. Sanctification, that's being made holy. The power of sin is being broken in our lives. And glorification, the presence of sin is finally and fully removed. And so the trajectory for our lives is from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to the next. We should expect that where we were being subject to sin, Jesus will progressively break sin off of us and us free from sin. We were slaves to sin, we are no longer slaves to sin, so we should expect victory. That, that might be a fight, you fight for the rest of your life to gain that victory, but your expectation should be, I will not be overcome, because Jesus has overcome. So the point of this is, you take hold of this by faith. It's not something that you possess instantaneously. I would love it if whenever we brought our temptation to Jesus, like... Maybe you had some habits in your life that you despised and you know God despised it too. And you brought it to God and you said, please set me free, Lord. And he said with the magic wand, because then you're free. I mean, I heard those testimonies of drug addicts who became Christians and some of them were instantaneously delivered of addiction. It's nice to hear those stories. God can do that. He can move mightily and, and actually deliver someone instantaneously from addiction. Most people, they just have to fight. God helps them. He comes with compassion into their weakness as a high priest that's aware of their struggles, who's felt and experienced temptation. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll walk with you through the fire. I keep calling you back to me, but there's no instantaneous deliverance. That's the reality for many. Why does God help some so dramatically and not help me? You know, because many times in my life I wanted that dramatic deliverance from something and God didn't. I can't explain that. He had other plans. And for most of us, that's it. He's got specific plans. He doesn't just make life easy. So, I have to come back to what I understand of the word. It says you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are not destined to fail but you're destined to be victorious.
You have access to grace through faith. You have a new heart and you are a new creature in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit. So believing that we are no longer slaves to sin, our response should be that we would arm ourselves with the faith-fueled conviction that victory over temptation is possible in Christ. That with Jesus and with Christ in us and us in Christ, we should be thinking, how can my life become more holy? It's possible. It should. It must. It will. The practical outworking of this is that we must learn to fight sin and resist temptation with the expectation that victory is not only possible, but victory is inevitable. In other words, the reason the devil doesn't persuade me to lie down in self-pity is because I know that the resurrection is coming. So though I am weak, he is strong. Though I may fail, he will lift me up again. The end state that I am destined for as a believer is to be in glory with Jesus. So even though I might lose a battle in this life, I know that the victory of the whole war has already been sealed. It's already settled in Christ. So I would put it to you that we should fight against temptation with the expectation that victory is not only possible, but it's inevitable. So some observations about temptation itself, because temptation isn't sin, temptation is a precedes sin. Well, there's, everybody's going to be tempted at some point, almost various times in repeated ways throughout your whole lives. This is because temptation actually works upon our, our flesh, upon our body, upon our sinful nature, upon our human humanity. Matthew 3 verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Sounds like a pretty cool moment. Jesus receives the Holy Spirit upon him, and the Father speaks affirmation over him. And the, 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 the next thing we read, the very next moment in the story is, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So, you're not going to be exempt from temptation. No matter how good you get, no matter how much God favors you, God allows us to be tempted. He actually has a purpose in this. He had a purpose in it for Christ. He has a purpose in it for us sometimes. He said, Jesus said to Peter, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat, but don't be afraid. I've prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. So in a way, God has allowed for circumstances to come that both tempt and test us. God himself never does the tempting though. That's why Jesus was led into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. See, God doesn't, because temptation is actually a, um, what would it be called? Um, you're trying to incite sin, you're trying to stir it up, you're trying to get somebody to, to, to sin, and God couldn't do that because his goal is never that you would sin. So it's impossible for God to tempt anyone, but he could allow the devil to come and tempt you because he's planned something good to result should you see it, should you recognize his dealings in your life. So rather than ex exempt you from temptation or trial, God wants to lead you to victory through temptation and trial. So Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. 
So I, I would say temptation would come to everyone. It does. And uh, it has an arena where temptation meets you. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. So there's, there's a context in which temptation is often brought. The devil would come and look for a, a time and a place where you're maybe away from people. You're on your own. You're alone. You've maybe been put into a wilderness or maybe it's just um, a time when people can't see what's going on inside of you, your thoughts, or maybe they can't see your actions, you're in secret, you're somewhere where no one can see. I don't know where that is in Madagascar, I'm still trying to find that place. Um, but really it's normally in the dark or it's when you're alone and there's nobody watching you. So temptation has an arena. Jesus went into the wilderness. You should watch out, therefore, for those times where in your thoughts you're withdrawing from people and you're isolating yourself and you're thinking they don't understand me or I'm, I'm going to be all on my own, I'm going to go sulk here or I'm going to go and sideline myself here. It's in those places that the enemy comes to attack you. He doesn't attack you usually when you're in the throng of the congregation on a Sunday between 10 and 10.30. It's, it's not usually the place the devil will find you. He'll try to find you when you're on your own. Start sowing doubts, sowing thoughts of like self-destructiveness or rebellion or bitterness or I should be allowed to do this. Why don't they let me do this? Who, who could stop me from doing this? And the enemy will get you in a kind of an arena where you're more alone. The temptation, the way it works, it also targets a weakness. In Matthew 4 verse 2 it says, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So Jesus was kind of doing spiritual stuff, but actually there was also real physical needs. He was hungry. He hadn't eaten for very long. I don't recommend you try to fast like Jesus did. The point I'm making though is that there's a weakness or there's something that seems like a legitimacy to temptation. In other words, um, you should eat. You need to eat. You deserve to eat. The, the enemy will come to you in an area where there's something and he'll say, you actually deserve that. You, you deserve to unwind a bit. So why not do that thing that makes you feel good? Why not just indulge your flesh and make yourself happy right now? No one will know. No, it's like, just do this thing. And you think about it, you think like, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a legitimate thing. Why, don't I, why shouldn't I also be allowed to? Why shouldn't I also be allowed to do this thing or do that thing? And so there's a legitimacy. You feel entitled to something. It's because you're hungry. So there's a weakness that's being targeted. There's usually an arena in which this happens. And you know our enemies, the world, the flesh, our sinful nature and the devil. Well, temptation comes and it operates on the old man. So temptation doesn't really work on... Um, the new creature in Christ that was born again, your new heart, the heart that loves God, that, that new me that Jesus has made when I was born again, that, that is not really weak to temptation. That part of me should be in tune with God being led by the Spirit. But there is within me this carnal nature, the sinful nature. It's described as the flesh or the sinful nature. 
There's the old me that is the one that should be being crucified, the one that should be being put to death. And I should be putting to death the flesh and its deeds, and I should be following the Spirit and walking in newness of life. But temptation comes to the old man and says, No, you don't do that. Do this. Enjoy this. Take this. Have this. And so it operates on the old, and this is how it operates, just like it did with Adam and Eve. We'll read in Genesis 2 verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So there is something that's going to be desired, but you're not actually free. You're not actually entitled to fulfill that desire. Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and the Lord, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So it's a little bit, she was a bit vague on what God had said. She wasn't there, Adam was there when that command was given. The serpent said to the woman, You will sh not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam should have been leading in that moment, and he abdicated. He was the one that was there when God gave the instructions. She wasn't even created yet. So in a way, I'm, I get more angry with Adam. Um, really left us in a bad way. <laughs> Matthew 4 verse 3, when Jesus is being tempted, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, see the same approach, casting doubt, questioning God, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And when Adam was tempted, they looked at, Eve looked at that fruit, it was good for food. So it appealed to a, just a normal appetite, good for food. You're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the devil's playing with Scripture now. Jesus said to him, Again it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. So the devil's actually playing on Jesus' mission, which was to purchase for himself a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Jesus' end goal is that the peoples will worship him, and the devil was saying, you can have all that without the crucifixion. Imagine all the gains with none of the pain. That's how temptation often comes to us. It says you can have a shortcut to something that normally is more painful or costly to obtain. Taking the easy road. Like uh, begging instead of working. It could be a temptation just to be lazy and just to depend on other people's goodwill rather than working hard with your own hands or stealing. 
Let the one who steals steal no longer, but work hard with his own hands. Anyway, so the devil's offering him a shortcut. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now in 1 John, John writes about these same things. He says, 1 John 2 verse 15, 1 John 2 verse 15 to 17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John is actually characterizing the, the, the ways in which temptation come. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. And he says, but these things are passing away. That's another reason why you should think you're going to have victory over temptation in the end. Because desires eventually fade. Even by the time you're 100 years old, you're probably not craving chocolate anymore. My granny, when she was 97, she was such a sweet old lady. She was at peace with us, at peace with everything. But she had lost her sense of taste. She had, there wasn't much joy left for her in this world. She couldn't eat food and, and love it, the taste of that food. And I thought about that, and it's amazing how God in the end will wean us off this world. So sometimes we over-elevate the things of the world as if we have to have them. We have to have a new car, or we have to have a new pair of shoes, or we have to have these things. And, and that's when you start stirring up desires that in the end are probably just passing. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's a key I'll come back to in a few minutes. So Luke ends his account of Jesus' temptation this way. Luke 4 verse 13 says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So there again, temptation is going to come back at an opportune time. Temptation comes, it goes. It's stronger, it's weaker. You're feeling in control, you're feeling pressured again. You're struggling, then you're not struggling. The devil's looking for an opportune time. What will make for an opportune time? For you or for me. You know they did a survey and they found out that pastors are most likely to watch pornography on Sunday nights. Did you know that? You do now. Pastors, it's a unique job because most of our output is on the Sunday in terms of like spiritual, like we've gone, we've emptied our hearts, we've preached our heart out to the congregation. They walk away saying, eh, it was quite good, but uh, yeah, I was blessed. The pastor on the other hand has gone through like this, this major ministry moment of his week and he gets home and he thinks, oh, I'm so exhausted. What should I do? Pamper myself a little bit, indulge a little bit. And so, statistically, Sunday nights is the opportune time for the devil to come to the pastor. It's good to know. So what do I do on Sunday nights? Go off to my study, sit all on my own at my PC? No, I think twice. I think, well, let me get there earlier while people are still around in the house, watch a violent action movie, so at least I purge all of this junk out of my my thoughts that are like, ah, did I do well enough? Was Sunday productive? Did God move? Were people, you know, rather just deal with your mental stress in some innocuous or harmless way 
like a violent action movie. I'm not advocating that as your medication. But then make sure that you go to bed. Climb in bed next to your spouse and sleep. Because 11 p.m. on a Sunday night is no longer my ground, it's the devil's ground. So I don't want to be on that ground. You're courting someone, you're dating, then you're in love, then you want to get married, and then you start, you go finding place, ah, I've got a place here, a house, I'm going to rent this house for my, you know, don't take your bride there before you're married. Why? Because no one else is there. The devil's waiting to get you in the opportune time. And the opportune time for couples to mess up is within the few months before they're planning to get married. That's when you're most likely to sleep before, you know, with someone before you get married to them. So don't be stupid. Don't go make opportunities where you can be alone together. Do the opposite. When my wife and I were courting, it was a kind of an odd courtship, but we reached a moment where we realized this is serious. We want to get married and we want to get our hands on each other. It's a good thing. God made sex. So, how do we administrate it rightly? Well, we found a single lady in the church who was older. She was a widow and she was living by herself. And then we said, please can Sue move in with you? It's like, why? Because we need some help in our courtship. We need this level of accountability. We don't trust ourselves. So we're putting something into place that means after I take Sue out somewhere for a meal in public or after we hang out together for a while in public, I bring her home to this lady because our parents lived like seven, eight hundred kilometers away. They were useless to us in terms of walking in purity and integrity before God. But what we did was we found a surrogate because Jesus said in his word, whoever leaves his home or his mother or his father will not fail to inherit more homes, more mothers and more fathers. So we went and found another mother and put Sue in her house. And she was a wonderful, gracious lady, but I did not want to keep her up late. So I would always bring Sue back by 9 p.m. and drop her off there with this lady. Why would we do that? Because I believe it is possible to overcome temptation, but it doesn't happen by accident. It happens when you start to identify how is temptation seeking to trip me up. Put something in place that makes sure that you don't get taken out. Tiredness, being alone, success, those moments where pride comes before a fall, failure, self-pity, the fear of man, these are all opportune times for temptation. Sometimes I can distill it right back to the deeper heart issue of when you're embracing autonomy too much. To the extent of feeling that I am autonomous, meaning I can do what I want to do, that's the degree to which temptation can trip me up. But when I think I am submitted to God, I am accountable to God, then I start to realize, no, I'm not actually free to do this thing that I was contemplating doing. I'm not free to indulge my flesh like other people may. I'm not free to do the thing. See, Adam and Eve were never free to eat the fruit. God said, you are not free to do that. And we often think freedom is our right, but actually freedom is not everywhere. We're not free in every respect. In fact, what I start to realize as a believer now is that the Bible says I'm a slave. 
not to sin, but to righteousness. And so I start to think, how do I submit my life to righteousness? I, don't, I want this, I could do that, other people do that, but no, I'm a slave to the one who saved me. I'm a slave to his will, his righteousness, and I want to obey him in the way I live. And so the solution is basically live as a child of God, submitted to God, empowered by the Spirit, but in practical terms make wise decisions like where you will be and when you will be there. Don't be in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. Don't be in the wrong place at the wrong time with the offering. You know, like, if you can't handle it, then say, like someone said to me, I, I don't want to count the offering. I also respected that. I never asked the guy to count the offering again, because I'm not going to want someone to be in temptation. I just also hope he never has to work at a bank. <laughs> Jesus submitted to the Father, saying, I do only what I see the Father doing. We must learn to see our lives as lives submitted to the will of God. We're not free, but rather we're people who belong to God. We're now slaves to righteousness. In other words, we should see ourselves as bound over to do what is right. Even though I'm tempted, I have to see myself as someone who is destined for glory, bound over to do what's right. That God will be progressively purging me of the power of sin and setting me free. So that's the direction I want my life to take. Temptation itself is not a sin, but temptation yielded to can lead us into sin. And sin always leads to death. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 to 14 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Last little tip. You think it's just you struggling with that. Nah, everybody's struggling. Everybody has the tough pressure you're under to give in to that temptation or their own other temptation. But no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. It's fascinating. You can escape it while you're still having to endure it. In other words, God will show you, though He doesn't take the temptation away, He will show you a way to run away. Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. Sometimes you have to flee from the room you're in. Maybe the thing you're about to do, just whatever, drop your phone and run away. Someone else will take your phone. That's a, depends where you drop it. <laughs> Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, says Paul to the Corinthians. What an affectionate way of talking about temptation. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. My beloved, why, why would that be in there? It's because ultimately this is not a question of moralism and law. It's a question of how much God loves us and how much we love Him. And if you want to guard your life against temptation, then just fill it up with love for God. Just decide I'm going to love God more than I'm going to love the other things the world has to offer. I'm going to love God. I want to guard intimacy with Him. I want to keep a tender conscience. I will repeatedly say that you cannot put a price on a clean conscience. Do 
you know how thrilling it is to know that you have a clean conscience? So build your life for that. Value that. Make decisions that give you a clean conscience. When you're about to do something and you think, how I'm going to feel guilty after this, then don't. Love God. Say, God, I want to stay close to you. I'm not just going to resist in my own strength. I'm going to run to God. I'm going to run away from temptation, but I'm going to run toward God. And I'm going to say, here I come. I want you. I want to love you, and I want you to love me, and I want to have clean conscience, open acceptance. God will never reject us, but we would put ourselves in a place where we feel disqualified when we sin. So resist temptation by running towards God, by saying, God, this is for you because I value you more. The band can come up. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to worship loudly because God is good. I'm going to pray for you if you want God to give you increasing victory in various areas of your life. Won't you stand? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus to pay for the penalty, the price of our sin. And that we will never be separated from you, not even by our failures, our weaknesses, and the sin that we will commit a month from now. But God, it's not enough that we just bask in justification. We want to be a people who are holy. We want to become increasingly like Jesus. And so as we stand before you, God, I ask that you would empower us in your grace and teach us to say no to ungodliness and temptation that comes to lead us astray. I pray in particular for people here who feel that they've struggled with habits, Lord, that are hard to break. I pray that you would call them to you, Lord. Call them back again and again and again and again. Even though we fall down six times, God lifts us up seven times. That's what Proverbs says. Even though you fail again, God will lift you up again. And so, God, we want to know in our hearts and minds that we will keep coming back to you because we love you. And that's our declaration, Lord. We want to leave behind the sins of this world and the temptation that's so, so common, so common, Lord. We want to leave it behind and take you and run for you. In Jesus' name, amen.